The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, church. You get lots of FaceTime with me today, which is a fun time. Uh, and going into this week, Chris messaged me and said, it's going to be a busy Sunday. We got Angel Tree, we got child dedications, we got a lot of things going on. So keep it short, uh, which feels very ironic coming from Chris, if you know about his <laughs> sermons. Um, but we'll do our best. We have a really exciting passage in front of us to close out the book. And I'm really excited to kind of sum up where we've been the last few months with First Peter. Um, as those who've been here, we started this series the first week of September, and during that, we've covered a lot of really heavy topics, such as submission, suffering, living hope, Christ is the cornerstone of the church, and it's been a really big challenge for me personally and for our entire church as well. Peter has a way of packing a lot of meaning and depth into a few short words and phrases that we can think about and mull on for a very long time. So if you're newer to Fathom and this is your first time here, today we actually almost wrap up and summarize the entire book with a few short passages. So we're going to do about 11 previous sermons all today in eight verses. Let's get after it. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. That's where we're going to be today. We have Bibles underneath every chair. It's on page 1017. We want everyone to have your opportunity to look at the text as well. As was mentioned, though, this weekend has been really special for me and my family. As we shared earlier, we were able to adopt our son Conrad yesterday into our family. Um, He was placed in the foster care system at birth, and he came to our family at four days old, and that was 946 days ago. And yesterday, he officially became part of our family. Foster care is something that's taught my wife Maddie and I so much about trusting the Lord and leaning on community. So I just want to personally take a few moments to thank this church and the many of you who've been with us every step of the way. Before Maddie and I became foster parents, I told her that one of my non-negotiables was to have a strong community if we were going to do this. And we found Fathom five years ago as an engaged couple, and I'm so proud to be part of a church that's been with us through the mountaintops and the valleys. These last five years have been seeing our family start when we got married. We added three kids in a 14-month time span, not all biological, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Two from foster care, and we've endured the roller coaster of child welfare. This church has showered us with meals, prayers, gifts, and support, and I know we wouldn't be here today without you all. So I just want to take a moment and just reflect on the blessings and just say thank you and praise God for the last two and a half years. Conrad's story has been defined by Fathom Church and from people walking with open arms and making him feel like part of our family from day one. He has grown from the small baby that has struggled with attachment and separation to now the boy that's smiling, loud, (laughs) very loud, uh, (laughs) gregarious little boy says hi to everyone, gives high fives in the hallway. He now asks us every day when he can go to church to see his friends and to sing songs because he loves Amanda's worship and to learn about Jesus. And we praise God that Connor will have a church to grow up in that loves him the way that Jesus loves him. So again, thank you so much for welcoming our son into our family. Okay, now we got all that out of the way. Now we can talk about our passage uh, today. Let me go ahead and just read again 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. So please turn in your text. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish him. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you here in Christ. So as we've journeyed throughout this book the last few months, we, in the words of Chris, have experienced a beatdown of different topics. And Peter holds nothing back. He writes to the churches in the region to endure through the trials and sufferings that are there before them. Let me just quickly restate the sermon titles in the previous 10 sermons to emphasize this point. Be different. Grow up. Spiritual house. The battle. The government. That was fun. <laughs> Weaker vessel. Double the fun. Prepare to suffer. Stop sinning. And the iconic. Suffering is fire the emoji. If you have any feedback, Chris's email is chris at fathomchurch.org. <laughs> And lastly, submit to elders. It has not been easy to hear some of these truths over the last few months. However, the very first sermon that was preached was by Kyle, and it was a very different message. That sermon was called Living Hope. It was a sermon that was filled with encouragement and to place our hope in what lasts. And the only hope that lasts is a faith in Jesus and the promise of spending eternity with him. Throughout the whole book, we have seen Peter point people to eternity in heaven where all will be, will be made new to help endure through suffering. Kyle's message launched our series in 1 Peter, and Peter circles back today to many similar themes that he began with 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter closed out his book by using a literary technique in the Bible called an inclusio to frame the book. He wants us to reflect on the message in this book and to remind ourselves that we do have a hope that lasts despite the trials and sufferings. That's why I'm calling today's sermon, Eternal Hope. May you leave here today with a reminder that as believers, despite the suffering we may experience, the challenges of being different and living counterculturally, we do have an eternal hope. I don't know about you though, but for me, it is when I am suffering that I need hope the most, but where it can be hard to believe. It is where I can feel the devil actively work to disrupt my faith and try and turn me from him. Verses eight and nine speak about how the devil operates and waits for moments of weakness to attack us. It is when our, in our sufferings where the devil often may try and cause the most damage when he sees that our armor is weak. The churches in Asia Minor were suffering. They were experiencing suffering, isolation, loneliness, and were struggling. And today you may be feeling something similar. You may be suffering. You may be in isolation. You may be lonely or struggling. So I want to approach our passage today by instead of having three points, I want to talk about three lies that the devil is trying to convince you of when you are suffering and three truths in the Lord of encouragement to combat those lies. The goal is to arm yourselves with the truth of the Bible that is in this text and point you to the true eternal hope, which is the eternity with God. So let's look at the first lie in truth in our text. We'll go back to verses six and seven. 
Verse six says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Last week, Chris preached about submission to elders and verse five addresses the younger in the church. And the younger, as he said, more than likely refers to the non-elders. But here in verse six, we see a shift where Peter is addressing the elders and the younger with the same encouragement to close out this book, which leads you to my first lie and truth that we see in this text. The first lie from the devil is that you are capable on your own. And the Lord's truth to combat that lie is that you can rely on God. In every circumstance of our life, but most definitely in our sufferings, is when the devil wants us to believe that we can do things on our own without the Lord. He'll want us to believe that we don't need God and can rely upon ourselves for everything that this life can throw at us. Spoiler alert, you can't. I can't. No one can. It doesn't matter how religious you are, how much money you have, how smart you are, how good looking you are, how strong you are, rich, anything, you will not be able to. You may think that you can, but you're only setting yourself up for failure. So as mentioned, we just adopted our son, Conrad, and he's the best. He's hilarious, so funny, but he's also very stubborn. If you have a toddler, if you've raised a toddler, you know that toddlers are very stubborn, and they are convinced they can do everything on their own, like everything. Now, there are some tasks that he can do on his own, mostly. He can throw away things in a trash can, usually. He can bring us a blanket, or he'll steal a blanket. He can get a toy from the basket to play with it, or he'll just take his brother's toy and play with it. And all great things that we want to teach our son independence. However, there are some things that he cannot do on his own, despite his loud exclaiming where he says, my turn. Most recently, Conrad loves to sit in the front seat of our car and say, my turn, and say, daddy, bye. Get out of here. I'm going to drive this car by myself. <laughs> now, Maddie read my sermon. She said, I have to make sure to be really explicitly clear. The car is turned off. <laughs> there are no keys nearby. It's a push start, but they're in the house. So there's no way you can turn the car on. But one day, I know that I'll nervously hand my boy keys to drive a car in 14-ish years or 34 years. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> But let's pretend if I was a terrible parent. And I said, yeah, Conrad, you got it. Take it out for a spin, be back by eight, have a great time. How do we think that was gonna go? Well, if he, made, if he managed to turn the car on and made it out of our driveway and learned how to get out of the cul-de-sac where we live, it would be a matter of moments before he would either hurt himself or hurt someone else there is a 0% chance of Connor successfully driving at this age. Like, literally zero. <laughs> Despite him insisting that he can do it and saying, my turn again and again and again. Now, church, if you think you're capable of going to God and saying, my turn, then you also are as misguided as Conrad. And I mean that with all the love in my heart. And every time... I remove him out of that front seat. He kicks and screams at me and wants me to stop and says, my turn, my turn, my turn. 
And I know that I am doing the right thing by keeping him safe, by not allowing him to drive. And that's why the first words in, chapter, in verse six say, humble yourself. We have to first acknowledge that we cannot do this on our own. We endure through suffering by humbling ourselves and submitting ourselves to God. Verse five says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We also, though, are not submitting to a God who is not capable. We are called to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, which says in verse six. That same phrase is used when it talks about God delivering Israel from Egypt. And if you know those stories, that includes God sending the 10 plagues, parting of the Red Sea, and removing a nation under slavery from 400 years. We are called to submit to the mighty hand of God who is more than capable and has promised to exalt us, as it says in verse six. Now, I wanna be careful here. This is where our previous message on suffering will help us here. This may mean that we may experience some opportunities of grace in this lifetime to be exalted in this life and to experience the goodness of God despite suffering. However, more than likely, this reference to exalted is talking about the end exaltation when Christ has returned and we are lifted up and we spend eternity with Christ. We are not guaranteed that exalted, that being exalted in this lifetime. This is one example of what I mentioned earlier where it looks back to our text in chapter one in 1 Peter. So let's look back on 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, which is on the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter, again, in our text today and in chapter one, is pointing people to a heavenly perspective, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes. That is why after telling these churches to endure and humble themselves before God, Peter encourages them and us today by saying that we need to cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for you. God does not promise to leave us alone in our sufferings. He does not promise to leave us alone in our sufferings and trials, but promises to be there with us throughout all of it. This verse tells us how we can be humble before God. We are humble before the Lord by acknowledging that we cannot do it. Believers should humble themselves by casting their worries on God. If believers don't cast their anxieties upon God, and continue to worry, then they are convinced that they must solve all their problems on their own and their own strength. And the devil wants you to believe that's the truth. The devil wants you to believe that you don't need God, but you can do everything on your own. That you are the only God and you can trust yourself. But when believers throw their worries upon God, they express their trust in that mighty hand of God acknowledging that he is Lord and sovereign over all of our life. Now, there are many of us here who struggle with anxiety and worry. And at times, all of us have gone through that. I personally have also experienced that. And there are also times where we need to pursue professional support and counseling and praise God that there are men and women who are equipped to help in those times. 
There are also moments where medication may be necessary for either a long time or a season. And as Chris said in a previous sermon, essentially there are moments for prayers, people, and pills. How are the very first thing as a Christian we have to do is turn our anxieties to God. One commentator stated like this, affliction will either drive one into the arms of God or it severs one from God. The devil wants to sever our relationship with God. He is actively trying to disrupt it. However, we have a God who wants us to cling to him even more when we are suffering. His heart was made to welcome us into his open arms. One of my favorite books as for my view of God is Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And he says it like this. The deeper into weakness and suffering and testing we go, the deeper Christ's solidarity with us. And as we go down into pain and anguish, we are descending ever deeper into Christ's very heart, not away from it. Church, we can endure our suffering because we have a mighty hand of God to comfort us and love us. My question for you is, are you running to him today? Are you casting your anxieties upon him? Or are you, trying to, are you taking comfort in the palm of his mighty hand? Or are you trying to do it all on your own? My encouragement to you is to run to him and rely upon him. So let's keep working through our text. Let's turn and look at verse eight, which says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We see clearly here that the devil is active in working in this life, in this present moment. He is throwing everything he can at you in a way that is tailor-made to you. He wants you to believe that everything that lasts is only in this lifetime and there is nothing eternal to cling to. Therefore, here's my second lie and truth. The second lie from the devil is that your present life is all there is. And the Lord's truth to combat that is that your hope is in heaven. Again, the devil's lie is your present life is all there is. And the Lord's truth is your hope is in heaven. Verse eight begins with two commands be sober-minded, be watchful. The word for sober-minded picks up the, on the idea to be free from confusion and passions and driving influences in your life. Just like someone is asked to be sober to perform tasks such as driving, we need to have sober minds throughout this world. The devil is trying to make each of us believe that the world is our only reality. In church, it's no surprise that our world isn't doing too great. From wars with Russia and Ukraine and Israel and Palestine to violence in our world, rising drug abuse, increase in suicides, depressions, and many more things, this world is full of information that causes us to lose hope. Many of us here are also experiencing really hard things, or you're personally walking through people who are in tough situations. From failing marriages, to parenting challenges, to diagnosis, to financial worries, this world is full of harsh realities that can make us feel hopeless. However, on the flip side of that, though, there's also a temptation to pursue pleasures in the world. We can be tempted to believe that chasing the next promotion, relationship, house, trip, or experience 
will alleviate us when we are suffering. The devil can use these things that are not bad in themselves to convince us that our whole meaning and worth can be found in our own lifetime on this earth. And this is causing us to have an unsober or distracted mind and leads us to priorities that do not allow us to think clearly on things that will last. And that's something that's really personally challenging for me. Chris talked about the Enneagram a few weeks ago and exposed that he's a type three. And apology if you think that all this Enneagram stuff is nonsense, but I'm gonna talk about it a little bit more. <laughs> I'm a type seven. If you know anything about the type seven, they're referred to as the enthusiast or the adventurer. Another way to think of that is that we are professional pleasure seekers. We look at this world and want to squeeze every opportunity out of it. We don't want one Girl Scout cookie. We want 30 Girl Scout cookies. We don't want to take one vacation a year. We're going to take seven vacations. And let me tell you, they'll be the most epic ever vacation of your lifetime. We don't want to throw any party. We want to be the party of the year where everyone leaves saying, man, that was the best party I've ever been to. The funny thing is that Maddie is also a type seven. <laughs> Some of you may not be looking at us but like, oh, this makes so much more sense now. <laughs> we love people. We love trying new things. We also love treating ourselves to Chick-fil-A even though dinner is cooking in the oven. <laughs> and we can convince ourselves that that diet should start tomorrow. We are really, really great pleasure seekers. Or, as other people would call it, pain avoiders. The Enneagram is really helpful, in my opinion, because of the way that it describes the shadow side of each personality. The attributes that we don't want to acknowledge about ourselves, but we know are core to who we are. Some of the words to describe the side of a type seven are, from the shadow side, are shallow, gluttonous, erratic, undisciplined, fearful of boredom, and being in pain. You ready to party with seven now? <laughs> but in all seriousness, regardless of our personality type, we often can be consumed with what the world has to offer and use things in the world to minimize our sufferings. We can create unsober minds and can pursue our passions and hobbies. I mean, we all live in Colorado, a place to explore and lose yourself. From skiing, hiking, fly fishing, good food and drink, or the sunshine, we are a culture that is full of distractions. Yet, this, yet despite the amount of ways to enjoy life, we are a culture that is more depressed, sad, and lonely than ever before. And why is this? It's because the world wasn't meant to satisfy us. This world will not give us true eternal hope. As another type seven, I'm pretty sure, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1-2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, does this mean that we just abandon this life and walk around with no purpose thinking the world is gonna end and all doomsday? We don't do that. Because I know that each of you have felt glimpses of joy, love, and peace in this world. And those are good gifts from the Lord. And despite the challenges in the world, the Lord has a unique purpose for each and, each and every one of you here today. 
yet we cannot place our hope in this world. For as C.S. Lewis famously says, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In church, each of you was made for another world. And this is the eternal hope that Peter is getting to in this letter and what he is continually pointing these churches to. He is saying again and again, don't put your hope in this world. Put your hope in the world to come. This is what he's referring to when he says, be watchful. The idea of this phrase of be watchful is referring to the idea of eagerly waiting and watching for the Lord to return. Peter is encouraging us to cling to the truth that this world is not our reality. So if you're a Christian today, we can endure because we know that we are not permanent residents of this world. We know that death is not the end for us, it's only the beginning. We are being, being made new for a new world where we'll be united with our heavenly father, creator, and savior. So church, let me say this clearly. We can't endure in the world unless we have a proper understanding of the world to come. Now, there are many ideas about heaven. Are we just going to be in white robes and tunics and playing the harp and bored and singing melodic songs? In church, that couldn't be further from the truth. Heaven will not be a boring place. Let's read a few verses to describe what heaven will be like. Isaiah 25, 8 through 9. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trust in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trust in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The next verse, Revelation 7, 16 through 17. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And lastly, Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Church, heaven is the place where all is made new, where we will experience our full, authentic selves. This is where we become who we are made to be. I want you to imagine a few key moments in this life that have filled you with joy. Maybe it was a bonfire with friends, the birth of a child, your wedding day, a hug from a loved one, or accomplishing a personal goal. That moment, while fleeting, is just a taste of what we'll experience for all of eternity continuously. We will not know any sadness, fear, or anxiety. We will only know true love, joy, and happiness. And this is the hope that Peter is asking us to cling to. The hope that will help us endure through trials and challenges in this lifetime. And I'll say it again, we can't endure in this world unless we have a proper understanding of the world to come. The devil wants you to believe that this life is all there is and that your suffering will define your life. However, our hope is in eternity. So how do we set our sights on heaven and keep eternity in perspective? 
we see how to do this in verse 9. So let's go ahead and read verse 9 one more time. 1 Peter 5, 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We know that it can be hard to endure through sufferings and trials, especially when the devil is active and trying to convince you that we will only be defeated and devoured by him. However, there's a victory that is promised. And this leads me to my last lie and truth. The devil's lie is that your resistance is futile and the Lord's truth is your active resistance will lead to victory. Again, we see that Peter leaves us with an explicit command. Resist him, firm in your faith. The word resist implies an active resistance. We will not resist the devil by just wanting it to happen. It will require an active resistance when we are aware of the devil and how he's working to discourage us in the midst of our sufferings and trials. Passive resistance is like being subject to a rip current. If you've ever been at the beach and you've experienced rip current before, you know what it feels like to be pulled away from the shore. I was a science major, so I love studying about these things. So I was doing a lot of reading about rip currents, and they occur when waves travel from deep to shallow water. And when they break, it generates a current or undertow that pulls the swimmer back out into the ocean. A rip current can travel as fast as eight miles per hour and faster than an Olympic swimmer. Every year, hundreds of individuals die from not being able to escape the rip current. Unless you know the secret of escaping a rip current, you could be continually pulled back into the ocean. In case you don't know the secret, I will tell you today. So you will save yourself if you go to the beach. The secret is to swim parallel to the shore so you slowly get out of the rip current and make your way to land. You have to actively resist the current and swim against it, not head on, but a parallel. Our resistance to the devil has to be an active resistance. We can't just hope to get out of the rip current. We need to resist him and work actively in our resistance. But to be clear, we are not commanded to resist him alone. One commentator stated it like this, resisting the devil does not mean that you are the one who has to do a Herculean effort and do it all on your own will. Resisting the devil means that, believer, that believers remain firm in their faith. That is their trust is in God and they believe that he truly cares for them and will sustain them until the end. Perseverance from first to last is defined by faith. You cannot do this on your own. We again have a God who knows us and has proven himself again and again that he will give us the strength to resist him. It is in this that we can have faith in the present and hope for the future. We can also endure sufferings and trials because we, we will not be enduring them alone. This letter was written to a large group of churches in the region who were all experiencing suffering and persecution. We church also need to lean on our own community when we experience suffering. Making a Christian believe that he or she is alone in their suffering is a way that the devil works to disrupt the faith of a believer. And we are in a culture that is defined by an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. 
A recent report from the U.S. Surgeon General was published in 2023, and it showed that despite the improvements in healthcare, technology, that American life expectancy has decreased over the last two years, which is the first time in over 100 years. The pandemic played a part in that, but the report concluded that one of the reasons for this life expectancy decrease is due to chronic loneliness. It's an epidemic that has effects similar to if you were to smoke 15 cigarettes a day to the body. That's what the science is telling us about loneliness. Loneliness is an epidemic because the body is not, is not what is killing us. It's the lonely soul that's killing the body. As one author, Justin Wimmel Early, says in his book, Made for People, these statistics from this report point to, the, point to the enduring truth of God's word in Genesis and throughout scripture that it is not good for you to be alone. So church, we are called to endure through sufferings and trials and to put our hope in spending eternity in Christ, but you don't have to do it alone. We can put our faith in God and we need to do that alongside community. If you've been exploring Fathom or another church, but aren't sure if you're ready to commit to a church, I beg you to commit to somewhere. It doesn't have to be here. We would love for it to be here, but you need to be part of a church and a community. It's not just a necessity or not just a nice thing to do. Your body and soul absolutely depend upon it. A place you need to be part of where you can be known through the periods of suffering and the periods where the Lord has graciously extended blessings to you. And this is how we will resist the devil. You also can't be passively be known. Being known takes work. It takes sacrifice and it takes intentionality. We are all busy. And the current of American society is to pull us away from community and intentionality. And this is where we need to lean in and press in more and fight actively against the tide that is trying to cause us to drift into loneliness. This also isn't for extroverts or type sevens or people who are social. Every human needs connection and every Christian needs Christian community. And this is how we will hear the truth of the Bible to endure through suffering and to speak words of encouragement to one another. So let's close our time by focusing on verses 10 and 11. Verses 12 through 14 are great. We just don't have time to get to them today because I've been put on a time crunch from Chris. Verses 10 and 11. And after, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as we close out this book of 1 Peter in this message, these two verses succinctly summarize the main message of 1 Peter. We see in verse 10 that as, 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 that as a Christian, it is not a matter of if, but when you will experience suffering in this life. Peter reminds us that suffering will come and be part of our time as a believer. However, after our time of suffering, we are promised grace. This is Peter's eighth time using the word grace in the short book and helps us understand that while sufferings we may experience may be intense, God is the possessor of all grace and gives it freely to each of us. And Peter builds to this penultimate point of encouragement and uses four distinct verbs in this last verse. And his main point is this, despite your trials, God is sovereign in the past, God is sovereign in the present, and God is sovereign in the future, and you can trust him. 
God's promise to do four things. He promises to restore us. He will make things right. He promises to strengthen us. He will give us the encouragement. He promises to secure us, which talks about the cornerstone of Jesus being our secure foundation. And he promises to empower us. He is the one who will leave us with the power to persist in this world despite our weakness. And again, these four key words illustrate that main point that Peter is trying to hit home, that despite your trials and suffering, God is sovereign in the past, in the present, and in the future, and you can trust him. So church, as we come to the conclusion of this book and this series, we learn today about the lies that the devil will try to use to make us capitulate and turn away from our faith. But God's truth is real and we can put our hope in it. So I have a few final questions for us as we close out. My first question, which lie of the devil are you having a hard time dismissing today? Do you think that you can do things on your own? Or do you think that this present life is all that there is? Or do you believe that your resistance to the devil is futile? We will all have seasons where we will struggle with any of these lies, but which one is challenging you today? Once you've identified one, my question to you then is how can you speak truth to your soul? How can you, how can you remember that your hope is in heaven and in eternity with Jesus? We again are called to resist the devil and stand firm in our faith. You can humble yourselves and submit yourself to the mighty hand of God. So take comfort in that today. My next question, how can you remind yourself to keep eternity at the forefront of your mind? What are some ways that you can use this truth to encourage yourself during suffering? This world is always going to distract you, distract you and I from the truth, but we must ask God to encourage us to be watchful and long for Christ's return. Finally, church, my last question, how are you doing living in community with fellow believers? If you're doing well in this area, are there people that you can invite who need that community? If you aren't doing well, how can you actively work to be part of a community of believers? If you want to be more active in this church, talk to me, talk to a staff member, talk to the elders, because church, we need people to be known to persist in this world. And I pray that you'll cling to the eternal hope that is found in Christ and that you will have a longing for the new heaven and the new earth. And again, I want to leave you with this truth. Despite your trials and suffering, God is sovereign in the past, in the present, and the future, and you can trust him. And this is why I will end with verse 11 that says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we wrap up this book, as we prepare for a time of reflection and response, may we see that our only hope is in you. Our only hope is in a life, um, an eternity that is found in you, Lord, and that this world will distract us, will break us down. And if we don't have people around us to love us and to pour into us, then we will we'll be um, able to have the devil intercede in our life, Lord. So I pray that for each person here today, that they will ask the question of how the devil is trying to work and how they can put up a fight and resist, Lord. Um, 
So thank you again for the hard truths that are in this book, but may we be a church that stands firm in our faith and presses on and leads into you and keeps your heavenly perspective in mind. In your son's name, amen.